Folk, please turn in your Bibles to Second Peter and chapter 2. While you're doing that, at morning tea today, we will take a few minutes to, uh, for a special occasion. One of our older members is reaching 90 years of age in a day or two, and the ladies have done something extra so that we can celebrate this event with Gwen. So please stay after the service if you possibly can. As a guide to our study of chapter one of this little book last week, we asked the question, what's happened? And uh, the apostle wrote to scattered Christian believers about what had happened in the past concerning God's provision for his people. And he wrote about two kinds of knowledge. The first one was knowledge that God reveals to all who believe in him. And then the second kind of knowledge was gained through ongoing personal effort and study. God has provided everything needed for godly living. That's knowledge number one that God gives us. And believers are then to keep adding to their faith using knowledge number two. Now God spoke through both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. The scriptures are God's words to us and we need to pay attention to them. Godly living proves that believers have responded to the call of God and godly living is also the evidence that God has elected them to be members of his family. Now our question for this study of chapter 2 is what's the problem? The first verse of the chapter, you look at it in your Bibles, shows that Peter knew that false teachers would create trouble for these people. History reminds us time and time again of the persistent tendency of fallen humanity to adapt distort, add to or take from God's ways to suit its own corrupt interests. I think we need to press the button again, Andrew. A famous singer of the past said, I'll do it my way. Now that remains a problem in our day as well. And we are foolish to ignore it. Over the 2,000 years since Peter's time, false teaching has become more confusing, more persuasive, more intrusive, and we have to decide whether the Bible is indeed God's revealed word, and there are constant challenges about that. But we do remember that Jesus said when he prayed to God, your word is truth. 
Now, there's a series of technical books that you may have seen written for non-technical people, and this is one of them, Facebook for Dummies, a whole series of subjects for dummies. Now, we can think of Peter presenting his material in this chapter in a somewhat similar way. He's divided his material into four parts. And the first part is features of false teachers. And in this part, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he gives some clues as to how we can recognise false teachers. Now, number one, in verse one, he mentions destructive heresies. That is, teaching that is not in keeping with scripture. In verse three, Peter says that heresies are stories they have made up. And the feature here is unorthodox teaching. In verse 2, Peter says that many will follow them. False teachers may be popular because their message can reduce the demands of being a disciple. Their message can be more attractive because it makes things easier to conform. But it's false. And the feature here is questionable popularity. Verse 2 also uses the phrase shameful ways and that same phrase is translated in verse 7 as filthy lives and in verse 18 lustful desires. Now that phrase means sexual misconduct devoid of any sense of shame loose morality is another of these features now Peter also says in verse 2 that such shameful ways will bring the truth into disrepute history has many sad stories of people whose words and or deeds have not matched biblical standards Distorted witness is another feature of false teaching. Verse 3, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you. Greed and exploitation often involve money, but reputation, influence, in our day, media attention, lifestyle, can also be part of the story. Motives manipulate ministry and false teaching can result from unworthy motives. Now Peter was writing these things out of a deep pastoral concern for the spiritual growth and maturity of his readers. Some 30 years had passed since Jesus died and rose from the grave but false teaching had emerged and Peter lists these five features to watch out for now in our time how much greater the damage and division 
the distress and disillusionment caused by false teaching. So unrelenting is its intrusion and so persuasive its advocates that many are deceived and led astray. We have endured in, uh, distressing news coverage of the misconduct of leaders and ministers that has brought God's church into disrepute, of disturbing findings of the Royal Commission into sexual abuse, of media revelations concerning people or activities that degrade the biblical message, and of widespread hostility and division caused by radical religious movements throughout our human history. But Paul will, uh, sorry, but Peter will not allow things to drift on unchallenged. There are fundamental issues at stake concerning God's purposes for his world and for its people. So Peter moves on to his next part. Three significant examples. Now in these examples, God intervened in an interesting way. He intervened with judgment when things went wrong. In verse 4, Peter writes, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but put them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Second, in verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And in verse 6, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and rescued Lot, a righteous man. Now these three examples from Genesis are significant. The first in verse 4 may refer to events before creation. The angels who sinned may have included the devil and his demons, as we read about in Luke 10. Yet their disobedience set them apart for final judgment which we read about in Revelation chapter 20. So even the rebels who sinned in the heavenly realms could not avoid judgment, even though it may have been deferred. Now in the second example, the flood in Noah's day, uh, the situation is the other way around. (coughs) There was a rebellious world exposed to God's inevitable judgment. Yet there was deliverance which God provided, even if it was only for a few. Inevitable judgment, but there was deliverance. In the third illustration, God burned Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That is frightening. But again, just one man was saved. Now it might surprise us that Lot is described as a righteous man. But Peter says, look, he experienced family grief 
emotional distress and torment of his soul to live a godly life in cities like that was tough going and we must be slow to criticise him. Now in the Bible each of these examples if you look closely begins with the word if. If God did not spare the angels. If God did not spare the ancient world. If he condemned the two cities. Now if these things occurred then verse 9 then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. There's a solemn word here, rescue, deliverance and judgment are equal realities. We also see here something of the sovereignty of God. He is in control of the godly. He is equally in control of the ungodly. The final judgment hasn't yet come, although its time draws ever closer. Godly and obedient people will still find life tough going, while the ungodly and disobedient seem to get it easy. But God's judgment is inevitable, it is unavoidable, except that Jesus can save us. Now in verse 10a, the first part of the verse, Peter identifies two reasons for such judgment. The first is that they follow corrupt desire of the sinful nature. That's a description of inappropriate sexual behaviour as was common in Sodom at that time. Told to us in Genesis 19. The second reason is that they despise authority. Peter may have meant God's authority or apostolic authority or even the local church authority. But the key problem is the universal human urge to do it my way. Peter moves on to his next part, covering verses 10b through to 16, the character of false teachers. First in verse 10b, we find that they are described as being bold and arrogant, not afraid to slander celestial beings. These people were daring and overconfident and they would speak insultingly of things they did not really understand. Verse 12, Peter says, They blaspheme. To blaspheme is to speak evil. They blaspheme and they are like brute beasts. Although claiming knowledge, they were ignorant. And they acted like irrational animals, just following their own natural instincts. But in verse 13 is the sobering word, they will be paid back for the harm they cause. Those who pursued wild living usually did so at night 
but these ones did so shamelessly during the day. In verse 14, Peter condemns their uncontrolled sexual desire towards every woman they saw and their ability to snare others who were unstable or immature in their faith. In a word, they were an accursed brood. Now those are sharp words. Peter goes on in verses 15 and 16 to liken these false teachers to Balaam in the Old Testament. Now he was a false prophet in Israel and the Bible tells us that he loved wickedness. And yet in the letter to Pergamum, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, the writer tells us that Balaam enticed Israel to commit sexual immorality. Now the outcome was that even his donkey rebuked him. Now of course so did the angel of the Lord. And it goes on to say that this resulted in that prophet's madness being restrained. So Peter gives a strong and severe account of these people and their ways. Peter moves on to part four. False teaching for dummies, the nature of their teaching. Verses 17 to 22. Peter now turns to the nature of this teaching that came from these people that he's described in the previous part. In verse 17, he has in mind the value of water in a desert environment. People are thirsty. But the efforts of the false teachers were very disappointing. When water was needed, their teaching was like springs without water. It was like an approaching storm that did not yield any useful rain, but only a passing mist. Peter indicated in the next verse that while they said much, it was only empty, boastful words that appealed to the sinful human nature. They promised freedom to others, but they themselves were slaves of evil. Then we come to verse 20. Now this is a difficult verse. At a first reading, some might think that Peter has described here believers who have lost their faith, turned back to their previous life of unbelief. But this contradicts other scriptures such as we find in John 10 where Jesus says none shall be plucked from the Father's hand. So it seems wiser to interpret this verse this way that here are people who were acting outwardly like Christians like the people with whom they mixed but they were not true believers. 
They had heard the gospel but had not believed the gospel. Peter says clearly in verse 21 that it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turned their backs on it. Friends, they are very serious words and we need to search our own minds about that. Have we truly believed the words that God has given us and demonstrated that belief through godly living? Or are we only acting the part? Now Peter then gives his conclusion about the activities of the false teachers uh, as he moves towards the end of the chapter. And he quotes two proverbs. One comes from scripture. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. The second one hasn't been found in scripture, but it has been found in ancient literature. It's about the washed pig that dives back into the muddy pool. Now we recall that Jesus referred to both dogs and pigs in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, he said, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample you under their feet. Now the efforts of these false teachers, you see, were ineffective. The animals in the Proverbs had not changed. The dog was still sick and the pig still loved mud. The gospel transforms lives but the ministries of the false teachers are ineffective. Now let's try and summarise. Our question was, what's the problem? Well, you know what the problem is now. Very clearly, it is false teaching. And Peter gave four perspectives. You come into the room and there's number one, number two, number three and number four. False teaching for dummies. Peter had strong words to say but it's still a persistent problem and his words apply to all who distort the truth of God's word in their teaching. Now I want to suggest that there are perhaps three areas that are of immediate concern for us in the time in which we live. The first one, that wretched inner urge to do it my way inevitably produces distress and failure and we must abandon it. Whether we are chosen to be the new President of the United States or whether it's a little child who objects to correction. Do it my way 
is a terrible problem for us. Second area, misuse of our sexuality with all its far-reaching implications. Gender issues. What is a family? Can't we have an alternative to marriage? There are serious consequences for us as individuals, as human families, and particularly as God's family. We must follow God's order. Third area. We must resist the subtle trend to adopt patterns of the world around us to make us as Christians more relevant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. And there are those today who call for that message to be made more appealing, less apparently foolish. But Paul also says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Compromise results always in misrepresentation of truth. You know, the safest way to avoid the false is to focus on the truth. And Jesus said, in prayer to God, your word is truth. Errorism is worse than terrorism. Father, we, we find some things in the Bible hard to take. But it's truth. And we need to be aware of the challenges to that truth. Presented often in subtle adorned kinds of ways that can mislead us. So we're thankful that they're there even though they may be painful. And there's the awful danger we can pretend to be Christians and act like those amongst whom we move. But we know inwardly it's not real. But we are thankful for your grace, which means that it can be real. And so we pray you'll minister to us. Help us to accept what you have done in the past. 
Help us to be aware of this problem of false teaching. Help us to hold firmly to the word of truth that you have given. And thank you for the gift of the Spirit who instructs us in the truth and is able to hold us to the truth so that we are able to live out the truth in godly living. Help us as a church, we pray. Help us our our working group and the selection of patterns for the future. Who will lead us? What our ministry agenda should be? Who we should have to help us add to our faith and grow and thereby mature in our faith? We would pray. We commit ourselves to you again for the week that's ahead. Thank you. Thank you that there is deliverance from judgment because of what Jesus has done for us. We have remembered it this morning in a simple but meaningful way according to the directions Jesus has given us. And so help us to live godly lives as evidence that our faith is real. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Folk, next week we go on to chapter 3, would you believe it? And the little question here is, what are we waiting for? You might like to read through the chapter in readiness for that.